0: So good morning, everyone. Um, Ephesians. Ephesians is, if I'm allowed to have a favourite book of the Bible, I think it probably is my favourite book of the Bible, and I sort of go back to it again and again. And um, it wasn't my choice. I just wanted to say that we, I didn't manipulate this that we did Ephesians again, or that I got to speak on Ephesians again. Um, It was. Paul and Anthea's um, decision, um, but I was really, really happy with it um, because Ephesians is one of my, if not my favorite book of the Bible. And it is so rich. It is rich in themes. It is rich in language. It's rich in promises. It's rich in challenges. And the sort of picture in my head right now, it's almost like we're standing not not at a crossroads, but at one of those sort of crazy junctions with roads going off here, 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 and here. And we could walk down any of those roads. And over the next couple of months, we will probably go down more than one of those roads. But we are, as has already been said by Anthea in her introduction to this morning, and as it says in the title, we are choosing to look at Ephesians through a particular lens, or to put it another way, if I can make this go the right direction. No, that's gone the wrong direction. <laughs> there we go. Anyone recognize um, what that is? A flock of geese flying south with one flying north? Or um, where have you seen that before? Somewhere. There. Anyone recognise that? Oh, it, it's a. It could be a mixer, but it's not a mixer. No, you obviously don't go online shopping very often. It is the filter icon that you. It's usually really small, up in the corner. But if you go online shopping, a uh, uh, sort of a, a online store that ha- sells many, many different things, there is this button. Look for it. It's there. And it enables you to filter what you get shown. So you are looking for, just for the sake of argument, men's trainers, um, and because I've done that recently, um, and, and it will show you. And then you can even filter what brand and what size and so on. It's really useful, guys. You know, if, if you get nothing out, else out of this morning, I've just saved you hours online with this filter button. And that's what we're doing with the book of Ephesians. We are applying a filter as we study, as we prepare, as we listen. We're applying a filter that says, search for the Holy Spirit (laughs) and show us Holy Spirit-related things. Now, here's the truth, and don't criticize me if this happens to you, even when you apply that filter in online shopping, because of various algorithms put in place probably by various manufacturers who want to still get their things shown, even when you've applied the filter, other things do occasionally pop up. And that will happen over the next couple of months. And it will happen this morning. Other things will pop up which are God-inspired because there are other things he may want to show us collectively or individually on the way. But we are applying this filter of the Holy Spirit, and I am going to attempt to be as disciplined as possible this morning to comply with that filter. So um, I'm doing two things this morning. I'm doing a, a Brief introduction to the book of Ephesians, and then I am going to dive into chapter one, which is why I'm trying to speak fairly quickly, because there's a lot to do. That's got you seen out. Okay, so let's go that way. Hooray. Right, so we often, when we've been talking about uh, looking at letters in the New Testament, we've said, then and now. And if you picked up one of those envelopes that are still by the welcome desk, saying, for you, that is the philippians well, it was philippians wasn't it um to the marlovians that was the and now looking at how that letter could speak to us now let's look at the letter then first of all uh, and the opening verses of chapter one says paul an apostle of christ jesus by the will of god to god's holy people in ephesus the faithful in christ jesus grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that seems fairly straightforward, doesn't it? It seems it's a letter from Paul and those who look at these things and piece these things together, um, sort of biblical historians and so on, you can sort of piece together that it's probably written by Paul from prison or house arrest around uh, 60 to 62 AD when he was in Rome and it says here in this version we've got, it was written to the church in Ephesus. Right, that's the nice straightforward version. There are those theologians, good, Jesus-following, Bible-believing theologians who would raise a question about whether it is from Paul. That's to do with the language that's used. You don't really need to worry about that. Uh, and, and is it to Ephesus? Well, again, as we will see in just a moment, It's a bit strange that there are no personal references in the letter to particular people. You might, if you know other letters from Paul in the New Testament, you might remember that every now and again it sometimes addresses particular people in a church. Familiar with that? And there's one example where it says, you know, tell these two ladies to stop arguing and give my greetings to so-and-so and... There's none of that in the letter to the Ephesians, which causes some people to say, well, is it actually just written to that church? And the likely scenario is that this was a letter written by Paul to the area of Asia Minor, and it would have been taken around different places. One possible reason why we've got it as saying to Ephesus is that when it reached particular places, it's almost like there was a blank left in, in the introduction, to the church in, fill in as appropriate, and the, doc, the the version of the letter that has survived, that became part of our New Testament, was the one written to Ephesus. That's just one possible, doesn't really matter. I'm going to speak about this as if it is written, um, particularly to the Ephesians, because I think That does make sense as well. So how how about Ephesus? Well, Ephesus um, was a really major city in the Roman Empire. As you may be aware, it was located, I mean, it still sort of exists. It's in modern-day Turkey in the ancient world in Asia Minor. It was probably, at its height, the second biggest city in the Roman Empire. It had about 250,000 people, so it was second only to Rome. And it was a center of trade. It was on the major trade routes that we've talked about when we were talking about Philippi and Thessalonica. It was on a major trade route, and it was also a center of religion. And we we do hear about that in the book of Acts. So the goddess Artemis was worshipped there. Older versions of, um, translations rather, of the Bible Uh, refer to her as Diana. That's because that was the Roman goddess Diana and the Latin Vulgate took Diana because of the Roman connection and so on. But in terms of the Greek culture, it was Artemis. She was a goddess of fertility. She was supposed to be the daughter of Zeus. She was one powerful lady in their mythology and she was very, very important to the city of Ephesus. So where does Ephesus figure in our biblical record? Well, Paul spent a significant amount of time there. If you piece together all the time he spent there, it was probably three to three and a half years, something like that. And we hear about Ephesus three times in the book of Acts. First of all, in Acts 18, Paul visits there with Priscilla and Aquila And he leaves them behind while he goes on to, I think it's Jerusalem from memory. But he promises that he's going to return. And one chapter later, (laughs) of course there was no one holding up a board saying you're now entering Acts chapter 19. But one chapter later in Acts 19, um, Paul is true to his word and he comes back to uh, Ephesus. And in terms of the filter we're applying, a very interesting thing happens very early on in his, um, his vid- visit to Ephesus. He meets some people who are kind of saying that they're followers of Jesus, and Paul asks them the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they say, who's the Holy Spirit? They, no, no one's ever told us about the Holy Spirit. And the reason for that, most probably, is that they were converts of a guy called Apollos who actually went through the same process with with Paul, basically. He was an evangelist, but he didn't know about the Holy Spirit. And he was talking to people about a repentance based on the baptism of John for repentance. And there was a whole big important thing missed out. And Paul basically says, I'm summarizing now, but basically says to them, no, guys, Part of the whole package of following Jesus is an awareness of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And they're baptized again in the name of Jesus and they receive the Holy Spirit. They are baptized in the Holy Spirit. For Paul, following Jesus and being filled with the Holy Spirit are indivisible. And that comes through in his letter as well. And then finally, this isn't actually a visit to Ephesus, but when he's on his way to Jerusalem where he will then get um, arrested um, in Acts 20, he's on the island of Miletus, and he sends for the Ephesian elders because he wants to say goodbye to them because he knows pretty well what's going to happen to him, but he hasn't got time to actually go to Ephesus I think he probably knows he'll be stuck there for a long time if he does. So he sends for the Ephesian church elders and explains to them that under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, he's going to walk down this very difficult road. And they get quite emotional because they know him well. The letter... as it says here, as has themes in it that are majestic, cosmic, and also intensely practical. And all of those things will come through over the next couple of months. In Ephesians, and in chapter one even, right in the introduction, as we'll see in just a moment, we get a very big canvas painted by Paul. Big picture view of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a big picture view of all that God has done, and also some intensely practical stuff about how that means we should live. It's divided broadly into two halves. I mean, there weren't chapters originally, but as we have it, chapters one to three talk about what God has done that only he could do. And that's where we're going to be starting this morning. And then from chapters four, where I think, Jill, you're picking that up, aren't you, in chapter four? From chapter four through to six, quite a lot of practical stuff about because of what God's done, this is how we live. But I mustn't go into all of that now. So, guess how many points we're going to talk about chapter one under? Yay! We are going to look at three points in chapter one, and they are all in's. Three in's. And the first one, in him. Preeminence of Jesus. Even with our Holy Spirit filter applied, perhaps because we've got our Holy Spirit filter applied, this is where we have to start. Because this is where Paul starts. For Paul, it is all about Jesus. In Christ, in him, in the original Greek, I could have had that as a fourth thing, couldn't I? In the original Greek, I used, apparently, I don't know, I, I've not checked this because I couldn't read the Greek. Um, I should have asked Liner, really. But anyway, um, it's used 28 times in the whole letter. But 11 of those references, in him, in Jesus, in Christ, are in the first 14 verses of chapter 1. Now, you won't necessarily get that with your English translation because depending on what translation it is, it gets smoothed out because actually, I, as I understand it, in the Greek it's almost a little bit clunky because it keeps on saying in him, in him, him, but it gets smoothed out for us. But, but it is there, this emphasis on everything Paul is talking about is based upon us being in Jesus. And God's plan that he's about to unwrap is all to do with Jesus. Verses 3 to 14 in your Bible, I don't know, you could have a quick count how many sentences it is in your English translation. But in the Greek, what we have as verses 3 to 14 is one sentence one very long sentence. One sentence that is actually the longest sentence in the New Testament. It's 202 Greek words. As a copywriter, I would definitely have split that up, but Paul didn't. And I'm going to read it to you and attempt to convey something of that and something of the emphasis that it has. So, I've got a bit of a cold, so I've got... Deep breath, let's see if we can do this in as few breaths as possible. So, from verse 3, and I'm going to read from the NIV, it's not my favorite translation of the Bible, actually, hands up, but it does kind of bring out some of the language I want to emphasize. You also were included in Christ. You also were included in Christ. When you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. One sentence. Paul, sitting, probably under house arrest, maybe in chains, not sitting there thinking, poor me. I mean, I'm sure at times he might have thought, poor me. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he gets caught up in this amazing insight into God's cosmic plan from before the creation of the world to the end of the age. And how Jesus is central at the beginning and at the end. Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega. He's there in the beginning and the plan and he's there at the end. And he's there all the way through filling all things in every way. Now I don't know about you, But if ever I'm tempted to just retreat into a mentality about my faith that Jesus is my very best friend and he's forgiven my personal sins and that's that, good though that truth is, this is a fantastic antidote to expanding our vision of the enormity of what we are involved in. The enormity of God's plan. The enormity of what we've been included into. It's extraordinary language. It's an extraordinary insight. It's an extraordinary plan. And in the middle of all of that, oh, actually quite early on, at verse three, it talks about every spiritual blessing in Christ which includes what Paul had to explain (laughs) to those believers in Acts 19. That we are spiritually blessed, the Holy Spirit. We are full of the Holy Spirit. And it's in him. And I do just want to just put in a little... um, uh, Caution's probably the wrong word, but some of us will be aware, many of us will be aware that when we start talking about the Holy Spirit, when we start considering the Holy Spirit, when we talk about the blessings of the Holy Spirit, mixed up in all of that, sometimes are particular manifestations of that which don't always seem very normal. out of normal everyday experience. Now, I am not decrying any of that. But we do need to remember that it's all spiritual blessings in him. Let's keep Jesus as the focus, not the fireworks that sometimes accompany the spiritual blessings. And if we want any sort of scriptural Reinforcement to that in Acts 8, there's this guy, Simon Majors, who sees all the fireworks of the Holy Spirit and kind of says, well, what do I need to give you, Peter, financially, so that I can be able to do all that stuff myself? And Peter's words to him are salutary, if ever we're tempted to think like that. But Paul is really clear. In Jesus, part of the whole package is The Holy Spirit, which brings me to my second in, inheritance. The Holy Spirit, it says in verses 13 and 14, is, well, this is my paraphrase now, but the Holy Spirit is the seal on the letter of our lives that says we are followers of Jesus. We are inheritance of the promise. We are adopted into God's family and bang, here's the seal, just like an ancient letter would have a seal saying, yeah, this is from the king. The Holy Spirit is the seal on our lives saying, yeah, this is the real thing. This is the real McCoy. There's an interesting verse, verse 18, interesting linguistically and interesting theologically. In the Greek, and it may be translated in one of two ways in your translation. It talks about inheritance, and it can either be translated as we are God's inheritance, that's linguistically perfectly sound, and it's theologically amazing that God would count us as his his inheritance, And it can also mean we have received an inheritance in him. Now, I'm going to focus on the second one of those. But the first one of those, that we could be God's inheritance. We're that special to him. That's also a fairly mind-blowing and encouraging thought. And maybe it's supposed to be both. But let's just focus on the second one. We have received a mind blowing inheritance. We are children of God. We're blessed by Him. We are seated in an amazing place, but don't worry, Nigel, I'm not going to go into that now. I'll leave that for you next week. Spoiler alert. And we have an amazing future in the age to come. And the Holy Spirit, Paul says, is, is like a foretaste of that. Some translations talk about the Holy Spirit being a down payment, the guarantee of all that we inherit in Christ, the seal on our lives. Verse 19 talks about us receive being the recipients in our lives of the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Those of us who've been around a long time. We probably went through a phase, some of us, I'll put my hand up anyway, of living in a little bit of triumphalism. Because we've got all this power, it's all going to be okay. And then we've discovered that it's not. But I'm speaking to myself here as much as anyone else. Let's never lose sight of the promise of the power of God in our lives, it's there. Might not always be as cut and dried and simple and one plus one equals two as we hoped it might be. But God's power through His Holy Spirit, it's promised. It's the foretaste of the big cosmic plan of the ages. And finally, in It's a major theme of the letter with one particular emphasis in terms of the letter then. And in terms of the letter then, the original context of the letter, there is a particular emphasis on the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's plan. Now, lest we think that that is a small thing, let's just be aware that it was no small thing. It was offensive to any Jewish believers originally. It was incomprehensible to some of them that God would include in Gentiles into their plan. Paul here writing essentially to a Gentile church or Gentile churches makes it really clear, really clear, as clear as anywhere in the book of Ephesians, just how radical this inclusion is. Again, goes into it in more detail in subsequent chapters, and I won't touch on that. But it is here in chapter 1, Paul is talking about we, have been included in God's plan, meaning originally his people, his race, the Jews, and then you also, verse 13, talking to the Gentiles. And by the way, I didn't go into it all in in chapter one. It's got that word predestined. We really don't need to get hung up on that. The, The original Greek means God setting a horizon. What was the horizon that God set? That he wanted a big family. That's my understanding of those verses. And it was a bigger family than they'd originally thought. And Paul says, we were included in God's plan, and you also, Gentiles, were included. And that was mind-blowing to any Jewish audience. But this theme of inclusion is even bigger than that. And Paul kind of touches on it in chapter 1. All things, sum up all things in Christ, verse 10. All things gathered together in Christ. NIV says to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. What does that mean, Andy? I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to pretend I do. But I do know that it's important and I do know, again, it takes it out of any small-mindedness I might have about who's in and who's out. And going back to our filter, Holy Spirit, let's remember that the inclusion of the Gentiles by the church wasn't some neatly thought through strategic or theological plan. It wasn't that Paul or Peter or any of the others of them sat down and looked at the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, and went through it all and kind of went, well, we used to think this, but now we've got this revelation about this scripture, and so this is what we're going to do. They didn't do any of that. The inclusion of the Gentiles was a Holy Spirit inspired by, forced even, action. Think back to Acts 11 when Peter is persuaded to go and speak to some Gentiles after his vision of the unclean things in the sheet. Remember that? And when later he is explaining his actions in baptizing Gentiles because he has to give an explanation because there are people not at all happy with him about that, Jewish believers. He says this, if God gave them the same gift he gave us, the Holy Spirit, because he'd seen that happen to them, if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think I could stand in God's way? And when they heard this, they got no further objections and praised God. But it was a Holy Spirit-driven thing. The Holy Spirit led them in a particular direction. And they followed. It wasn't worked out. But they had to come to terms with the fact that God's plan was more inclusive than they'd ever Imagined. And I want to conclude by looking at one other example of that from the book of Acts. And it's one that just over the last few months um, I heard someone teach on it and it really impacted me because I'd never read this story fully. Again, I'd applied a filter and I'd filtered out one quite important aspect of the story. And it's from Acts 8. And it's the story of the evangelist Philip, who is led by the Spirit to go up to a chariot that is going along the roadside with a guy reading from Isaiah 53. Do you remember that story? Some of you do. If not, look it up in Acts 8 later on for yourself. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. He went, he saw this guy who was an Ethiopian eunuch. He'd gone to Jerusalem to worship. He was on his way home. And the spirit told Philip, go to the chariot and stay near it. Now, many of you will know the story. He listens to this guy reading from the book of Isaiah. He says to to Philip, can, can you explain this to me? What's the guy talking about? Philip explains how Isaiah 53 is talking about Jesus. Now, before we just go on to the denouement of the story, let's just go back a bit. First of all, who was this guy? Well, he was from the Ethiopian, the court of an Ethiopian queen. He'd been to Jerusalem to worship, he said, but he he had no understanding of Isaiah 53. He, He was a Gentile. That would immediately have restricted what he would have been allowed to do at the temple in Jerusalem. But more than that, here's this awkward word, he was a eunuch. Now, that word can mean various things, in the ancient world. And Jesus himself, in Matthew 19, said, some are made eunuchs by other men, some are born that way. Which, modern scholars looking at that, the probable equivalent of the second part of that that Jesus was talking about, may well be people that nowadays we would call intersex. We don't know what type of eunuch this guy was in the chariot. What we do know that just by virtue of being a eunuch, he was in a sexual and excluded minority. He was excluded because of his sexual identity in Roman culture The second century satirist Lucian stated that eunuchs were neither man nor woman, but something composite, hybrid, and monstrous outside of human nature. And Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, excludes them from Jewish worship as well. So what's happened to this guy when he's gone to Jerusalem? Well, conceivably, he's gone all this way and then been sent packing, and he's on his way out. And he's still searching. He's still searching. And Philip unwraps Isaiah 53 for him. He explains the good news of Jesus, and who knows, maybe he encouraged the guy to look a bit further down the scroll to Isaiah 56, where it says this. Let no foreigner, Gentile, who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. Whatever Philip said to him, it leads to the guy saying, A really interesting question. Here's water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? Just think about that question. He doesn't say, can I be baptized? He says, what's to prevent me? Why would he ask that? Because his life has been all about what prevents him and how he's excluded. And Philip, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, absolutely nothing. You are not prevented. And I'd like to think he said, because before the creation of the world, God had a plan to have a very big family made possible by Jesus, where all can be adopted as full family members, full of God's Holy Spirit, full of his power, and you're included. But he wasn't Paul, so maybe he didn't quite say that. Maybe he did. The Spirit led Philip to this marginalized person. Marginalized by national identity, by social standing, marginalized by sexual identity and so my final question is where might the spirit lead us? Life in the Spirit is full of blessings, but it's not always comfortable. Paul was led by the Spirit to Jerusalem and arrest, upsetting though that was to those around him. The Spirit led Peter into conflict with his friends in the faith through his actions. It led Philip to stepping, I'm sure, way outside his comfort zone. And it's interesting the Spirit immediately whisked him away. I think probably because it wasn't yet time for all of that to get unwrapped in the early church. Just let this guy go his way with his faith and see what he does with it. But he's whisked away. As we go through this amazing letter, we will see Paul unwrapping more of the spiritual blessings, but we will also see him unwrapping more of the challenges. Are we up for that? Are we up for that? Let the Spirit lead us. Can I just, just pray and then I'm going to hand back. Father, I want to thank you for the amazing truth of your word, the excitement, the blessing of your word. Everything you have done for us in Jesus. And it's my prayer, Lord, that as we go on looking at this letter week by week in more depth, that we'll get continually fresh insights of how you speak to us now into the truth of our situation, of our context, of our culture. Jesus name Amen